Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And you can find this on page 1504 in the Pew Bible. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The word of God for the people of God. As we enter into this week of talking about prayer and preparing to talk about fasting in a couple of weeks in our time together, uh, thinking about spiritual practice and discipline, take a moment to think about how do you pray? Who taught you how to pray? What do you pray for? How often do you pray? For how long do you pray? We're often told these are the important questions to answer when measuring the health of a prayer life. We worry that if we can only pray with the right words or form or with the right amount of eloquence, God will hear us. Perhaps if we pray for the right things, God will hear us. Maybe. If we pray long enough, and often enough, and with enough fervor, God will hear us. I was uh, standing in line at CVS recently, waiting to pick up a prescription, and I found myself looking at that spinny rack of books that's always sitting there right by the pharmacy counter. And a good third or more of the books on that rack are books about prayer. The secrets to more powerful prayer and books of special prayers and prayers for certain groups of people. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with books of prayers. I myself pray from the Book of Common Prayer regularly, and many of you have noticed that during the prayers of the people, they are often right out of our book of worship. But I think it's interesting that there are so many books out there teaching us how to pray. There's some sort of driving human need to figure out this thing called prayer. One of my commentaries says, We are burdened by centuries of exhortation and technique concerning right prayer. As a result, one darkly suspects, only a small percentage of avowed Christians actually pray very often. If we do, if we do sometimes pray, we tend to judge our efforts as deeply flawed. 
It's easy to be intimidated by the idea of prayer when we're surrounded by things that tell us how to pray. And even when we do pray, we can get sucked into thinking we're not praying quite right. Or we could probably pray better if we just had the right technique or more willpower or more desire. Now, there are certainly people who have figured out a rhythm of prayer that enriches their life with God, their relationship with God. Some people keep prayer journals. Others partner up with people over the phone or in prayer meetings. I know many Presbyterians who use the Book of Common Prayer. But for many people, it's hard to get a grasp on when, where, and how prayer should happen. Even those who have patterns of prayer in their life often question if they have it quite right. We want more direction on how to pray. We want to be told sometimes exactly how to do it to best be heard. And the disciples had the same question. It's not a new one. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. So Jesus offered to them what is perhaps the best known prayer that any of us can think of. It's prayed in nearly every church service, in every language, and many of us can say it by heart. Often when I'm in the nursing home doing visits or services, folks who can't even carry on a conversation with me anymore, as soon as I say, Our Father, begin to pray the Lord's Prayer with me, word for word, without missing a beat. Some of us know it so well, it's easy to gloss over the words. And when we're praying it, we forget the impact of each line. I remember one time when I was very young, I was probably only five or six years old at the most, I asked my Sunday school teacher what a sino was. And she gave me a really funny look and asked me what in the world I was talking about. And I answered, you know, like Jesus loves me, the sino. Sometimes the words are so familiar, they lose their individuality and oomph. Sometimes we forget to pick them apart and teach them to one another and to our children. And the message is lost, glossed over, mushed together. And the Lord's Prayer is not immune to that. It's actually a little hard to read the version straight out of the Gospels because it's not the version that comes straight out of our Book of Common Worship. The one that we generally pray is a combination of the different gospel accounts of the words in the Lord's Prayer. The one we recite, um, it's a hybrid between this one and there's also one found in Luke 11. But these words are really powerful when you think about them. It's not that this is some sort of magic incantation. It's not that the words themselves have some sort of special power. But in all things, we are to pattern our lives and the life of the church after Christ, and prayer is no exception. There's something striking about the simplicity and the confidence with which Jesus prayed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First and foremost, Jesus addresses God the Father. He acknowledges who he is praying to, and offers up the appropriate praise of God's name. There is no ambiguity in this line. It's very specific. It's not, hey God, if you're out there and listening to me. 
There's no question about exactly which God Jesus is praying to or whether or not that God is there. The idea of God as our parent is in strong contrast with the very second word of the prayer. The Aramaic word for father, Abba, is an intimate word. This is the word Jesus often uses when talking to God the Father. And while Luke and Matthew were written in Greek, Jesus probably spoke this in Aramaic originally. The disciples probably spoke rudimentary Greek at the best. Abba, or Father, communicates a loving familiarity. Yet in this prayer, Father is immediately followed by the word hallowed. Hallowed seems so reverent, so distant, so awe-inspiring after a cozy word like father. Even the more formal Greek word for father, pater, seems a contrast to the word hagiaso, which is usually translated as hallowed, but can also mean consecrated, set aside, made holy. It's the same root word as we get the word saint from. There's a tension in this address. In our own prayers, we are to approach God boldly, intimately, and humbly. God is our loving parent, and God is at the same time holy. We pray boldly and respectfully with our eyes on God alone. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Often when we think of the kingdom of God, the first thing that comes to mind is heaven. I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one who does this, but when I think of heaven, I immediately picture every painting I've ever seen of the pearly gates and the streets of gold, even the cheesy ones, and there are a lot of cheesy paintings of heaven out there. Heaven and the renewal of all is certainly part of what Jesus wanted us to think of when he taught us to pray for the coming of the kingdom. We're told in other places to wait expectantly for his return, for the redemption of all. Jesus talks a lot about it. But Jesus isn't just talking about the future kingdom of God when earth is renewed and the faithful are given new bodies. On earth, as it is in heaven. He's implying that part of that kingdom can be experienced in the here and the now. The kingdom is not just the physical realm of God. It's also God's ruling and headship. This is a prayer for our own hearts to surrender to God and for the hearts of the world to bow to his kingship as well. Your kingdom come looks ahead to the renewal of all, and it also looks to today, asking for God's will to happen right now. God, may you be ruler of all today and tomorrow your kingdom come. And so we pray with hope and with submission. Give us today our daily bread. This is a pretty bold request. There is no please or if it's okay with you, God. It is a simple expectation that God will meet our basic needs. In light of poverty around the world and even in our own neighborhoods, that can make this a very difficult line to deal with. 
People have tried to spiritualize this line to take the edge off that tension. They say that Jesus was talking only about spiritual bread. Now, certainly Jesus did also mean that we should ask God for daily spiritual nourishment. At the end of the passage, he tells the disciples that God will give the Holy Spirit. But the word that is used in the words of the prayer for bread in this passage is never used that way in Scripture. It is always referring to literal, physical bread when it's used in other places by the gospel writers. God's will for us is that we are provided for in all ways, spiritually and physically. But not everything that happens in our physical world is God's will. This is a broken world full of broken people. And provision doesn't always look like we expect it to anyway. One day a few years ago, when he was about three, Levi requested a bowl of trail mix for breakfast. It was one of those days, and so I was contemplating uh, whether or not I was going to allow that and just let it slide, when he added, but can you pick out the raisins and nuts for me? And then he was completely baffled when I told him that it was out of the question, and he was upset that I made him eat something a little more nutritious than a bowl of M&Ms for breakfast. Sometimes, broken, sinful world things happen that are not part of God's will. In fact, many times, broken, awful, sinful world things happen that are not part of God's will. And that's why it is so important to lead up to this line about daily provision by admitting that we are in need of submission and God's rule and participation in God's kingdom in this world. And sometimes our prayers seem to go unheard because we're asking God for a bowl of M&Ms for breakfast when we really should be eating yogurt. And when we pray that God will provide for us each day, both individually and collectively, we are praying in accordance with God's will. We pray this prayer with confidence, knowing that God loves God's children, and just as a loving human parent gives a child bread and eggs and yogurt rather than snakes or scorpions or M&Ms for breakfast, how much more so does our hallowed God delight in providing for the children? We pray with confidence and with trust. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about sin, let alone admit that we're all prone to it. This is a very uncomfortable line to say, not just to recite, they're all pretty easy lines to recite, but to really, really say. Forgive us our sins assumes that there are sins. Not forgive us any sins that might have snuck in this week while we weren't paying attention. This line admits that no matter how many times we pray in a given day, we'll still have sins in need of forgiveness the next time we pray. This is not a conditional statement. It doesn't mean that God only forgives us if we forgive other people. It is a comparison. Just as we are always in need of being forgiven, we are always in need of being the forgiver. No grudges or keeping lists of who offended you how, just keep forgiving. 
Just as we are constantly forgiven, we ask for the strength and the love to constantly forgive. We pray with honesty about ourselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we pray with a forgiving heart. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We seek forgiveness for past sins and refuge from the things that lead to future sins. We acknowledge that just as we have certainly sinned yesterday, we will certainly sin tomorrow. This line does not mean that God ever leads us into temptation. The phrasing is a funny word order due to translation. It is a request that God lead us away from temptation, that God would help us to see it for what it is and to steer us away from it. Much like Pittsburgh in summer, the world we travel is full of potholes and detours that can throw us off course. And in this part of the prayer, we acknowledge that we can't avoid temptation without God's help. We pray humbly. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Jesus doesn't stop his teaching about prayer after telling the disciples the words of the Lord's Prayer, not in Matthew and not in Luke. In fact, in Luke, he tells a couple of parables about asking for something and how a friend or a father would respond to the request. And if a friend or a father would respond with kindness to a request for help, how much more so will God? The words are important. Jesus does give the prayer first, but he doesn't stop there, and he leads into it with this beautiful piece about how not everyone who is praying on the outside is actually praying. Prayer is more than just the words you say. It's about the heart behind the prayer. It's about trust, sincerity, and real communication with our loving, powerful God. Not all of our prayers will be answered in ways we understand or even like. The prayer isn't about having a laundry list of things you'd like God to do for you. It's a conversation and a relationship with God. Prayer is a place to lay out our wonder, our fear, and our struggles to our dearest friend, our loving parent. Intercessory prayer for others is valuable and important. We put the prayers of the people in the church service with very good reason. But when it comes to our daily prayer life, there is more to it than just making requests. If we are not approaching God daily with this passion and the simplicity that we find in the Lord's Prayer, we're missing out on a richness of prayer that cannot be recovered in any other way. Prayer, including and especially the Lord's Prayer, is both simpler and more powerful than we give it credit for. Shortly after the prayers of the people, we will be saying the Lord's Prayer together as a congregation. And as we do so, I challenge you to really think about the words as you pray them. Say it like you mean it. Some of it may even be hard to say when you really think about the implications of what it means, and that's okay. It's not an easy prayer. 
I have a friend who likes to say that she doesn't always necessarily believe or understand every single word of the Apostles' Creed, but she loves saying it in community with her congregation because she knows that there is someone else struggling with the parts that she really gets that day, and there is someone else who really gets the parts that she's struggling with that day, and that is the same in prayer, in community prayer. There will be parts of the prayer that are difficult. Some days you may struggle with the prayer of confession. Some days you may struggle with the intimacy and the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps the confidence. But we come together as a community, praying together, declaring together, and that is one of the beautiful, beautiful things about having been given one another and given the opportunity to pray with and for one another. So as we pray together this morning, following the next hymn, let us pray with boldness, with humility, and with sincerity. <clears throat> 